Good evening. My name is Banning. I get to be one of the pastors here at 8th Street, and I'm really grateful to be able to share with you all tonight. As Chris has mentioned, today is Transfiguration Sundays, a Sunday, and I think this Sunday is quickly becoming one of my favorite Sundays of the year. Uh, Transfiguration Sunday comes as the last Sunday in the season of Epiphany. And so as we move into the season of Lent, which starts this Wednesday, it's sort of this transition period. Uh, it invites us to shift our gaze from the season of Epiphany, which is the season of light, the season of astonishment, uh, the season where God reveals God's self to us, into the season of Lent, which is an invitation to discipleship. As my former pastor once said, as we journey with Jesus toward the cross in the season of Lent, we are beckoned to look at the cross, to look at ourselves, and confess the difference. And so here on Trans- Transfiguration Sunday, we get to look at the transfiguration story that has both the revelation and glory of God and an invitation to discipleship, an invitation to walk the way of Jesus. So as we turn our attention to the scripture, I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, and we'll be reading verses 28 through 36. Uh, and for those of you who do not have a Bible, our ushers in the back do. Um, and if you are, if English is not your first language or your heart language, there's also Spanish Bibles available for you. And if you do not have a Bible, you're welcome to, to keep this one. Um, but just, yeah, wave them down if you need one. So I invite you to stand and hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Luke today. About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see. And they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them, and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice finished, Jesus was there alone. They didn't tell anyone at that time what they had seen. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us say together, thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. So I said just a moment ago that Transfiguration Sunday is quickly becoming one of my favorite Sundays, and to hear myself actually confess that and say that out loud sounds a little dorky and a little strange, so you'll have to forgive me if the the theology nerd in me comes out here in a minute. Um, But part of my love in this, uh, part of my love for this Sunday is wrapped up in my appreciation for liturgy. Uh, It's wrapped up in my appreciation for the flow and rhythm that we experience in the church calendar, because I think in those forms and the rhythms that we find in the liturgy and as we walk through the church seasons like Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and Easter and Pentecost and so on, they help uh, get us caught up in the story and work of God. Uh, they're, they're more than just ways to categorize our year. Uh, they're more than just giving us texts to preach from. They're more than just giving us the right colors to hang in our sanctuaries. 
Um, but they invite us into a narrative in which we can participate in the good and redemptive work of God. So these seasons are like markers in the year that invite us back into the way of discipleship. Uh, so that's part of my love. It's a, it's a turning point in the calendar, and it reminds me uh, to turn my, way, turn my gaze toward the way of the cross. But my other part, the other part of my interest in the Sunday is that there's just something about the story uh, that resonates within me. Uh, and as I think about what it is that captures my attention, uh, I almost don't want to admit it, but if I'm honest, I think the disciples are really intriguing because I think I actually really resonate with the disciples' actions in this story, which, for those of you actually listening, uh, is usually not something to brag about. Uh, throughout the Gospels, the disciples are depicted as people who just don't get it. Uh, Though they are constantly around Jesus, witnessing the miraculous healings, the inclusivity of Jesus uh, through the table mannerisms that he shared with uh, tax collectors and sinners, hearing firsthand the incredible and bold teachings of Jesus, the disciples seem slightly oblivious and not aware to what's taking place around them. Now, my wife Katie can certainly attest to my actions mimicking that of the disciples. Uh, I recall early on being on a date with Katie. This is before we were married. And she had told me that she was getting a haircut earlier in the day. So we get out to dinner, and by this point, I had just completely forgotten about this and therefore never said a word about it. Now, once we get to the restaurant, and it was obviously apparent that I had forgotten, Katie strategically places herself in front of me while we were waiting in line at Chipotle and uh, giving me plenty of opportunities to notice, to see. And and it's not like this was a small, insignificant haircut. Katie had like eight or ten inches cut off. So like I should have noticed, and she had told me. Uh, But I was just totally unaware. Uh, I was completely oblivious. So later on, she eventually and very gracefully reminded me that she had had a haircut that day, which I replied, oh yeah, I hadn't noticed, which was perhaps a worse response than not even saying anything. But sometimes it's just hard to see what's right in front of us. So back to the disciples. It's as if nothing sticks for the disciples. And after a while, Jesus realized he can no longer be implicit with his communication to them. He can no longer rely on the miraculous healings, the signs and wonders, the bringing up of the lowly. Jesus must be very explicit in his communication with the disciples. So after the feeding of the 5,000, where the disciples show yet again a lack of faith and trust in Jesus to provide, Jesus decides to take the disciples away to pray. It's just Jesus and the 12 disciples. And so he asks them, who do people say that I am? Now, this is not only a question of identity, like, what's my name? But this is also a question of mission, like, what am I about? What do people think I'm about? So the disciples reply with what they've heard others say. Well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you're one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. So Jesus then asks directly, okay, I'm not as interested in what other people are saying about me. Who do you say that I am? So Peter, the presumed head honcho of the disciples, replies, You are the Messiah, sent from God. Now, while it would appear that Peter has correctly answered in saying, You are the Messiah, sent from God, 
There were multiple understandings of who and what the Messiah would accomplish at this time in the first century. So just because the answer was correct doesn't indicate that Peter and the disciples actually knew what that meant or fully comprehended what they were saying. And leading up to this conversation, again, the disciples had seen these incredible displays of healing and power, and they had been witnesses to the good and redemptive work of God. And they themselves had even participated in the healing of others as Jesus had given them power and authority to do so. But it's like the disciples saw the actions and ministry of Jesus for what they wanted to see and neglected to consider the whole picture. You see, because it's one thing to see Jesus heal a man with leprosy. It's another thing to see that beyond the physical healing, Jesus was restoring this man into good societal standing. Jesus was giving this man his life back. This man could now have friendships. He could eat with others. He could have a job and work. He could invite people over to his house and be invited into the homes of others. Jesus was offering this man his dignity. You see, it's one thing to see Jesus raise to life the dead son of a widow. It's another thing to recognize that in this context and culture, that widow would have been dependent on her son to live. With the death of her son, this widow was reduced to a state of desperate vulnerability. And so in reviving this son, Jesus restores hope and life to this family. You see, it's one thing to see Jesus heal the, the woman who suffered a hemorrhage for 12 years. It's another to see this woman suffering as, again, physical and social. Because of this hemorrhage, she, she lived in a constant state of impurity according to the law and was thus isolated from her community. Jesus' healing then was both physical and social, a restoration back to the community. So as Peter affirms Jesus' identity with his lips, it seems that he's not considering the whole picture. He only sees it for what he wants to see it as. So Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Well, I would imagine that's probably not what the disciples had in mind when they're proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. Because again, they had just seen these extraordinary acts of power and had been given a taste of the power. So it makes no sense that the chosen one of God, the one who is to bring salvation to the whole world, would have to endure these things. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, not only that, But if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. So now there's this invitation to the disciples. Join me in this good work. And at this point, I don't know that Jesus could have been more explicit with his disciples. Uh, But when you don't want to see something for what it really is, it can be difficult to accept. And so after these conversations, we arrive to the scene on the mountain of the Transfiguration. The text says, then eight days later. So the disciples have had an entire week to think on these words and invitation of Jesus. So then eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up to the mountain to pray. 
Now these were the three disciples that had been with Jesus from the beginning. They had witnessed almost all of Jesus' public ministry and were now invited to go and pray with Jesus. And already in the Gospel of Luke, we see that prayer is often the setting of revelation, the space where God makes God's self known and where God's presence is so tangible. But I don't know that anyone could have expected what was to come next. As Jesus is praying, his appearance changes and and is transformed. His clothes become dazzling white. And suddenly the likes of Moses and Elijah are seen by his side as they talk about what is to come. And it's not, that, it's not just Jesus that appears different, but Moses and Elijah are caught up in the glory as well. This was a sacred and holy moment. <coughs> Excuse me. Now it's interesting here that Luke shares the content of their conversation. When we see this story appear in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, We aren't treated to the details of their conversation. But here with the glory of God surrounding their conversation, we read that they were speaking of Jesus' exodus, his departure, the events that would take place in Jerusalem. Now Luke could have used a different word here when he writes of Jesus' exodus. But he deliberately chooses this word to bring the mind of the reader back to the story of Moses and the exodus. And if you recall, as the Israelites were serving as slaves to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, God made way for Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt from the oppressive forces of Pharaoh. Moses was the great hero of the Israelites' faith, the founder of faith, the liberator of the nation. So for Luke to utilize the word exodus is absolutely intentional. He wants the reader to see the parallel between Moses and Jesus. Because in the way that the exodus from Egypt provided liberation and freedom and life for the Israelites of old, Jesus' journey and mission would also provide liberation, freedom, and life, but this time for all people. This would be a liberation from the bondage of sin and the bondage to the power of death by the resurrection. And so with all this in mind, the camera then turns toward the disciples' direction. These disciples who only a week ago professed the identity of Jesus and were told explicitly what it meant uh, for him to be the Messiah. And they were then invited into a way of life that didn't match their understanding of honor, didn't match their understanding of greatness or their understanding of glory. So it's here after waking up and seeing the glory of Jesus and the glory that surrounded Moses and Elijah that Peter and the disciples were welcomed into the sacred and holy. Now, I, I can imagine their mouths dropping, their eyes popping, being in complete disbelief as to what they were seeing. And it's as if in this moment of glory, this moment of encountering the holy, that Peter, John, and James completely forget the words of Christ from a week ago. You can see, uh, just imagine Peter leaning over to John and James whispering, This is what I'm talking about. This is it. We have arrived. Then before the disciples can tweet or Insta story or Snapchat, Moses and Elijah begin to leave. And again, you can imagine the disciples kind of shifting in their seats, going, where are you guys going? Hey, uh, hey." and you see Peter turning to James. Are they leaving? Hey, we guys wait up. And as one commentator I read this week put it, 
It's a bad habit of ours. When we don't know what to say, we start talking. Peter, in his attempt to stay in this glorious scene, blurts out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because for Peter and the disciples, this was what everything was building toward. This was the eschaton, the finale. Jesus surrounded by the likes of Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets, covered in glory and in the presence of God, the sacred and holy at their fingertips. So in their attempt to hold on tightly to the sacred and holy, the glory and presence of God, in an attempt to maintain their high status and honor, they are interrupted. As Peter was saying these words, the text says, a cloud overshadowed them and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. Then a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Now often in scripture when we encounter a cloud or at times it's depicted as fire or wind or light, this is meant to represent the presence of God. Uh, This is what we call a theophany, a visible and tangible manifestation of God. So now with Jesus and the gang already shining in glorious light, uh, I wonder why the cloud was necessary. Was the trio of glory not enough? But if we recall the disciples' tendencies to see things as they want to see them and not see them for what they really are, perhaps we can see the cloud, the interruption, as grace. The cloud graciously interrupts Peter's comments and emphasizes what the disciples already know, that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Chosen One, But the voice adds to the message and invites the disciples to listen to him. Now these words, listen to him, are like a gentle reorientation. An invitation and a call to a deeper understanding of Jesus and who he is as the Son of God, the Messiah. But it's also an invitation to discipleship. To begin to understand what it means to walk and live the way of Jesus. Peter and the disciples desire to stay in the sacred and holy because they have not understood the suffering dimension of Jesus's life. They have not understood the incredible price he will have to pay for speaking the truth, for bringing the word of God into the world, for announcing the reversal, the subversion of the kingdom. Nor do they yet comprehend the incredible price that they will pay themselves for following Jesus and proclaiming that same message. But It's more than misunderstanding. I I think there's a hesitation here by the disciples. And I think it's a hesitation to allow the sacred and holy, to allow the revelation of Jesus, to allow the presence of God to do the work of transformation in their lives. For when we are surrounded by the sacred and holy, when the presence of God surrounds us, we are invited into discipleship. And this week as I was studying I noticed something that really only makes sense in light of the text that comes after the transfiguration story. So as Jesus and the disciples come back down the mountain, we come upon a man with a son who is possessed by a spirit. The man comes up to Jesus and begs him to heal his son, which he does. 
But we find out a few verses later that disciples had tried to heal the boy, but were unable to. So I think here in, this, uh, here in these two stories, there's a, there's a movement happening. In the transfiguration story, we see this word glory and glorious. Uh, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were covered in glory, and they were glorious to see. This word glory is the Greek word doxa, which is where we get the word doxology. And doxology, our worship, the sacred and holy, is always inviting us into embodiment toward discipleship. But in fear, the disciples wanted to hold tight to the sacred, to the holy, to the presence of God, rather than allow the sacred and holy to transform, to move, and align them to the ways of Jesus. So when the disciples are unable to heal the boy once they're down the mountain, I wonder if they're still trying to make sense of what happened. I wonder if there's a hesitation to allow the sacred and holy to transform them so that they can live the way of Jesus. And I wonder if they fail to see that this opportunity to heal the boy is also a sacred and holy moment. So what does any of this have to do with us? As we move toward the season of Lent, which begins this Wednesday, how do we respond to these words in light of our invitation toward the cross? Well, I think it's first an invitation to be on the lookout for the sacred and holy. Where in our lives is the sacred and holy? Where is God revealing God's self to you? Perhaps a good place to look would be our doxology, our worship. Every week we gather here in the hope that we might get caught up in a better story. That the sacredness and holiness that we sense when we sing together and when we learn one another's stories, when we look at these stained glass windows, when we come to this table, that this sacredness and holiness would transform us to be more like Jesus. Perhaps the sacred and and holy is on display in more ordinary ways. Maybe it's a conversation with a friend or a colleague. Maybe it's the sound of great music at a concert. Maybe it's the sound of a baby giggling. Maybe it's in a room full of people with doubt and disenchantment. For the sacred and holy is all around, but it's always an invitation toward embodiment and toward discipleship. Perhaps the sacred and holy is not only found on top of the mountain, but when we serve when we act as good neighbors, when we come back down the mountain to heal the young boy, when we partner with folks like the Sparrow Project, when we sponsor a child, when we thrust ourselves into the things that actually cost us something, perhaps these moments are full of the sacred and holy as well, beckoning us toward transformation. And I think our next response is to not hold too tightly to the sacred and holy to not cling to it like it's the last thing we've got, to not assume that it's the finale, but allow it to move and transform, allow it to do its work in you, allow it to shape you, your dreams and your imagination, your gratitude, your disposition, your heart, your mind. Allow the sacred and holy to slowly align you to the ways of Jesus and then trust that you will be met again with the sacred and holy. Here in a few moments, we're going to have an opportunity to respond to the sacred and holy at the table. And each week we receive these elements and are reminded of the sacred and holy. When we receive these elements, we are reminded of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. 
Uh, we are also equipped to walk the way of Jesus. And we receive the body and blood of Christ broken and poured out for us so that we might become just that, broken and poured out for the sake of the world. But before we do, I wonder if it would be appropriate for us to take some time in reflection, to pray and consider the sacred and holy in our lives, to reflect on the way that we hesitate to move toward embodiment, to consider how we are being invited to discipleship in this Lenten season. So in a moment, I'll give you instructions uh, before you can come to the table, but I want to invite you to take a look at the wall. And on it, you'll see some points of reflection and prayer. I think some time in prayer, reflecting on these questions. And then when you are ready, you can come to the table. Now, this is not a Nazarene table or an 8th Street table. So anyone who can resonate with the disciples, anyone who fears walking the way of Jesus, anyone who wants to deepen their faith, anyone whose heart is available to the love of God, whose life is open to the direction of God and recognizes their need for grace, is welcome to this table. So it was at dinner on the night before Jesus was portrayed by those he came to save that he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat it, remember me. Then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Anyone who is open to this grace is invited to the table. We want no barriers, so our bread is gluten-free and our wine is non-alcoholic. And when you come, we invite you to come down the aisle to your left with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. Approach one of these servers, listen to what they have to say, dip the bread into the cup and be thankful. And if for any reason you cannot make it down our aisle, just wave your hand to Justin and he'll come serve you. So again, I invite you to take a few moments to reflect on these questions. Where do you see the sacred and holy? How are you being called deeper into the ways of Jesus? Does anything keep you from living the way of Jesus? And whenever you're ready, come to the table.